Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we discuss Plan Jericho's experience with neuromorphic sensors. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Catherine Ziesing, the Managing Editor of Australian Defence Magazine. Catherine, how are you going? Hey, good. Thanks, Grant. Now, uh, this uh, episode, we get to talk about some uh, Plan Jericho and some really cool technology that uh, we're working with uh, between the Air Force and uh, universities. So, uh, with that, I'll introduce Associate Professor Greg Cohen, Program Lead for the International Centre for Neuromorphic Systems at Western Sydney University. Greg, that's uh, quite a business card you must have. It's probably bigger than normal, right, with all those words? Yeah, well... The university pays per character, you see, so, you know. <laughs> Why spend a little when you can spend a lot? <laughs> Excellent. And uh, also joining us to represent the uh, uh, Defence Force side, we've got Group Captain Lyle Holt. He's the Director of Plan Jericho with the Royal Australian Air Force. Lyle, welcome aboard. Hey, Grant. Hey, Kath. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. So, Kath, would you like to kick us off? Sure. So, gentlemen, I've got you here today because I want to hear more about neuromorphic sensing. Um, so, I guess for some of our listeners, what the hell is that exactly uh, and why did Plan Jericho invest in it? So, Greg, if you could give us the 101, that'd be great, please. Okay. So, maybe it's good to start by telling you what neuromorphic engineering is, which is the field in which you know neuromorphic sensing sits. And I like to think of it as the opposite of biomedical engineering. So, in biomedical engineering, you're taking technology, putting it into biology to solve problems. We go the other way around. We look at how biology solves problems, and we take those ideas to try to build real-world systems that get towards the power efficiency, the reliability, and the robustness of biological systems. I mean, simply put, we're so much more efficient at doing tasks than a computer, for example. So if we try to do sensing the same way biology does, we can start making everything far more efficient, far more reliable, and use far less power. And that's neuromorphic sensing is just doing that with sensors, and specifically, as we'll talk about today, cameras that work more like an eye than a conventional camera. So, Lyle, how does that fit into what Plan Jericho sees as its mission? So, Plan Jericho's got a really broad mission. Um, we're effectively about finding, building, demonstrating uh, new technology, new concepts, new ideas, and trying to influence senior decision makers um, that these are worthy technologies to follow through into uh, programs of record inside of defence, into the IIP And we saw Greg's neuromorphic sensor, and where we originally got involved was we we built a capability demonstrator that we demonstrated at Avalon Airshow. For those of you listeners uh, who were down there, they and they got to the Jericho runway. Um, Greg and his team were set up down the end of that runway in a red and white Western Sydney University branded container, uh, and essentially had an observatory set up. A portable observatory in a shipping crate. Well, a mobile containerized neuromorphic observatory. I think the first in the world. My goodness. So, in terms of space situational awareness or space domain awareness, as we're now calling it, what are the applications? What's exciting about this? I think what's interesting is that when you change the way you do imaging, so these cameras don't take photos. They only sense changes. So, they're very bad for taking holiday snaps. But where they really excel is when you're trying to see something that's moving or something that's changing in your field of view. So if you think about looking at space, most of space is dark and nothing's happening, right? And when something does move, that's what you're interested in. So when these cameras stare at a scene when nothing is moving, you get no data out the camera. 
But when something does move, only the pixels that see that change send you that information. They do it really, really quickly. So if you have it looking at the sky and nothing's happening, you get no data out. Only when something happens do you get data from that. And not only does it tell you that something happened, it tells you exactly where it happened, which means you can start tracking it and following it really, really quickly. So when you start putting these cameras in an application like space, we can basically outperform conventional sensors in a whole bunch of tasks, as well as do things you simply can't do with a normal camera and a normal telescope. So, you know, if you take a photo a camera and you move the camera while you're taking a picture, it gets blurry, you get motion blur. With these cameras, that doesn't happen. They're so fast that you just get a stream of changes and you can see and you can reconstruct the information as you move. So we can do things like move the telescope and image whilst we're moving it. We can do some of these operations during the day. And also what this let us do was put this in a shipping container. If you look at a telescope observatory, they usually sink you know, four meters of concrete in the ground, make a really stable base and put a telescope on top of that because they're trying to get rid of motion. For us, motion actually helps us. We see better when things are moving because they induce change. And as a result, we can do things like put our whole observatory in a shipping container, which, you know, there's an entire industry built around moving these things around, put it down somewhere like at the runway at the Abram Air Show, plug it in and start doing observations. And that's a really interesting and unique capability. Simply, we can move our observatories around and no one else can. Are you looking to link multiple sites together? Uh, absolutely. So the trick with these things is that individually they're interesting. As a network, they're extremely powerful because if you have multiple uh, telescope observatories looking at the same object, you can start figuring out how high above the ground is. So you can figure out its altitude as well. And also just having a network of these lets you move them to locations where you're interested. So, for example, if you're looking at some, you know, when they launch a satellite that has lots of CubeSats on it, a big problem is that as the satellite goes up, it sends out those CubeSats sort of wrap them up. They sort of fires them off as it's going up into different into different orbits. And tracking those is a big problem. So for us, you could have six, seven, eight astrocytes all looking at that object and tracking each of those CubeSats as they come off and trying to get their orbits quicker and more effectively than we currently do. It takes days to figure out which is which. And uh, as you were saying, with using the uh, the shipping container method for shipping it around, it doesn't just fit in with the global shipping system, but also I've noticed the Australian Defence Force going very heavily into containerized payloads for uh, both radio comms um, and you know, warfare and so on, also for the uh, the concept of a server room in a in a shipping container. So, Lyle, I guess that uh, whole container aspect was pretty big for fitting in with the way defence is moving capability around these days. Yeah, it's just common sense, right? As you said, Grant, um, there's no sense building something that you can't move to uh, wherever you need it in the world. And, and with defence's current correct focus on grey zone uh, environments that uh, you know we'll need to be more agile in both how we operate, how we think, and um, that Im- implies you know, how we move. Gentlemen, I have to ask the obvious question. How did you meet? How, how did you find out about one another's work? Well, I'm going to hand over to Greg for that one because uh, he was already hooked up with Jericho when I was posted in a couple of years ago. So over to you, mate. Well, so actually, it was by an email. I was in the US talking to a bunch of people, and um, I got an email from one of the directors of Pan Jericho saying, yeah, listen, we're quite interested in what you're doing. Come have a chat with us. And I flew back in. I literally flew directly into Canberra. And went to visit Plan Jericho's offices in Canberra, and we had a chat. And it was incredible in that, you know, at that time, we were really exploring the science of this. And from a more academic point of view, and, you know, Lyle and Jerome, who was the other director at the time, basically said, well, okay, this is really interesting. And we can really see potential in this. But what could you demonstrate in three months at the Airshow? What would you like to build? What would you like to do? How would you show this to the world? 
And like I literally just said, um, I pulled a shipping container with it in because it was something I was toying around with. And I said, sounds good. If you can do it, let's do it. And we did. And I mean, it was fantastic in that I don't think we would have got anywhere near to where we are now without that sort of that push to take it from academic research to something tangible and real. I was just going to say, it wasn't the original plan, like the rough sketch drawn on your boarding pass from that flight? Well, that was actually on the way to Canberra. So this all came about because I was thinking about what about putting these things on trains and ships, you know, because you don't have, if you, if you can tolerate motion, why not do it from a moving platform? And I thought, oh, well, how do we do this? And I thought, oh, we put it in a shipping container, it goes anywhere. So I drew this idea and then I went to them and when it was just a happy, happy coincidence that I basically had this idea that I'd been thinking about for a few days before. And when I walked into the office and they said, what do you want to build? And I said, this. And, you know, it really worked like that. Sometimes these things just happen. Lyle, did you have something to add to that, mate? Yeah, I think um, it's that power of demonstration. It's the best way that I know to translate what is, you know, a, a super technical sort of idea, um, really exquisite, never been done before, obviously, and translating it to senior leaders who don't have much time, who are technically smart, operationally super smart, and showing them the potential for what these science experiments could potentially offer defence. It's really important that we have that ability to quickly demonstrate, prototype, uh, and influence those who need to see it. Which is what Jericho is all about, isn't it? Try to be, absolutely. It's um, having that freedom to operate clear of the standard IIP processes, the capability lifecycle processes, just to see if ideas are worth pursuing. Some of them are, as, as Neuromorph and Greg's team have demonstrated, and some of them aren't, um, and doesn't make them bad ideas. It just means that, you know, of, of great ideas of innovation, um, of a thousand, you know, only a handful may get up to be really world-beating. Yeah, because as they say, it's like um, going for oil wells. If every single time you drill, you get success, you're not really innovating because you've got to have a very high failure rate to push the boundaries and find what doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah, you, you guys obviously had the, the start of the journey together and you've now branched off into other things. Greg, could you tell us about the work, I guess, the the evolution of the Astro site since that initial uh, plan, Jericho? So we started with this idea of looking at space with neuromorphic cameras, and that actually came out of work with DST, the DST group. We, you know, we were playing around with the telescopes in Adelaide, and then this gave us an opportunity to actually have our own infrastructure, our own telescopes and our own observatories and just really explore and flesh out this idea of using these cameras in space environments. And from that, we've actually now putting the cameras into space. We have a project with the United States Air Force Academy to put two of these cameras on the International Space Station next year, which is really exciting in itself, and that's to look for atmospheric sprites. But more terrestrially, uh, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force has commissioned us to build a second astrocyte, which is essentially building, you know, going from an idea to an actual technology. It's an interesting process, and that rapid prototyping process we went through has been it was fantastic in finding all the problems that we didn't even think about, you know. Um, There's something to be said for trying to build something and to make it work. And you uncover all these edge cases and, and concepts and ideas that you would never have come across otherwise. And from that, we're now looking at adaptive optics with these cameras. So how can you build a formal mirrors that let you compensate for the atmosphere? We're looking at, you know, building networks of these, different ways to do the space situational awareness task. We're also working with the Australian Space Agency to build a South Australian Space Observatory that uses both passive radar technologies from Silentium along with our astrocytes. And one of the things, one of the spin-offs, I guess, is uh, we've been working with Greg's team on another project that we're doing with lasers and um, and looking at 
we reached a bit of a technical corner where our, the sensors that we were using had reached sort of the limits of their capacity or capability. And so we're working with Greg's team to see how they uh, might employ the Neuromorph sensor to help us with that laser work. So does that mean we're going to have freaking sharks with freaking lasers on their heads? I, I, I need to ask. These are the big questions. The university has very strict rules about working with animals. Unfortunately. Oh, no, understood. <laughs> understood. Push me back every time I'm getting sharks. Every single time. <laughs> they've, been, they've been watching those movies where they're uh, doing the stuff with shark brains and so on. Yeah, no, not a good look. Oh, no, it's, it's clearly an Austin Powers reference. Where have you guys been? I've got the reference. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, because right now when you're trying to get observation gear on an aviation platform, you've got to have gyro stabilizing and all this kind of stuff that is, if you're doing optical and trying to get perfect pictures, you can understand it. But if you're just trying to find out, hey, look, there's something coming up on your six, this this significantly reduces um, having, having seen the difference between a, a classic space camera system and your new neuro, uh, neuromorphic systems. The size and, and complexity is amazingly different. Well, that's and that really speaks to what happens when you change the way we do imaging. The thing is, cameras have become almost a commodity. We don't even question how they work. We just question that you get pictures out of them. And that's great for taking photos when you don't know what you need. But if you know the task you're trying to do, a camera that only takes what it needs means you can do that task more effectively. So what we found is that you've got to break all the rules. You know, everyone says, stabilize your camera. We go, no, don't worry about that. Use the motion. And it's hard to convey that to people because you're really saying, everyone goes and says, but this is how we always do it. So you really need somewhere to shake them up and say, no, no, this is how you can do it differently. And that's what the astrocyte is to us. It's a way to point to something and say, you see this box over here, this 20-foot shipping container? That's how we do it differently. And it's very easy to see that, hey, I can pick this up and move it. And that's a, immediately something that people can see, appreciate, understand. That's really hard to convey with academic papers. And Avalon Air Show was brilliant for that. Um, you know, we had the opportunity, and Greg, fill, fill in the blanks as I leave them, mate, but um, I think we had several ministers come through, um, Chief Defence Force, the Secretary, um, Chief of Air Force, obviously, Chief Joint Operations. So being able to show them exactly what this thing could do was brilliant. And it got the attention in the US as well because this is something that they struggle with as well, and to be able to see it and show it, you know, I got uh, follow-up meetings in the US to say, you know, what can we do to support this sort of research here in Australia, which is exciting. Which has therefore led to the two cameras on the ISS. Exactly. And Australian research. So good. Um, Lyle, obviously Jericho is all about those blue sky technology kind of ideas, you know, the art of the possible. What other kinds of spaces are you exploring at the moment? It's Where do I start? I'll give you a, a couple of quick examples of bottom-up innovation. So um, we're working with a, a young guy. I say young guy. He's been in the Air Force 19 years, but he's a brand-new uh, flight lieutenant, so literally promoted uh, 1 January of this year. And he's a guy that we've basically sponsored up through our edgy Air Force um, innovation program. So taking um, the rank and file, if you like, of Air Force and letting them bring forward their pain points and working with them to help them solve those pain points. So this guy uh, and his small team were out on Delamere Range up in the Northern Territory uh, as air combat jets were dropping bombs. And if a bomb goes off, that's great. You know, the, the current bomb scoring systems see that explosion and, um, and, and the exercise goes on. But if the bomb doesn't go off, uh, it's very difficult for our current systems to, A, detect if the bomb landed in the safety zone area that it should have landed in. And we, as good law-abiding Australians, have to go and find that bomb 
and make it safe and clear the range. Um, and that takes time. And so if you have an unexploded bomb, then there's a whole procedure to shut down the range, go look for it. But because we don't know where it is, that looking for it can take weeks. Uh, and it's really labour-intensive process because it's human beings going out, trying to find the hole for starters, and then tracing that hole because bombs are travelling at up to 600 knots, um, impact the ground, they can travel underground for quite a way, they can breach, skip, so on and so forth. Anyway, this guy got sick of being out there with his team and, and using a very sort of third-gen approach to fifth-gen warfighting training. So he did something about it. He decided to um, develop a, a bomb scoring system that relied on uh, acoustics, so a couple of acoustic sensors network together to try to uh, better triangulate where the bomb dropped. We picked him up in uh, Jericho, in Edgy Air Force specifically, and supported him, and we got him uh, through that process uh, to start looking at things like seismic sensors, so something that defence uh, had never looked at before, that, and certainly uh, no defence force that I'm aware of. And, and I say that because um, we look to work with uh, DST to help give him a little bit of scientific uh, support. And we didn't have any defence scientists working on effectively geological projects, which this was. Now, um, and that's not surprising and that's not a slight on anyone. That's just, you know, why would we? Um, so uh, we progressed this idea of a seismic sensor integrated with an acoustic sensor connected together over a mesh network that Dan built. And we hooked him up with the Australian National University and the uh, School of Earth Sciences to help him with some of the maths. And uh, over a period of just over a year, he's um, just recently demonstrated his prototype, which is detecting uh, bombs going off to six to 10 metres, circular error of probability, where our current systems are sort of operating at about 50 metres circular error of probability, and an unexploded bomb to within about 20 metres. Now, um, that's sort of, you know, what we call bottom-up in innovation. But that's amazing. Like someone who just got sick of, you know, doing this job, it was slow, it was, you know, arguably dangerous, has taken all of that away. And by default, where he was building what he thought was an unexploded ordnance tracker, and that's sort of how he's built it. I actually reckon he's built a much better bomb scoring system that just happens to be an exquisite unexploded ordnance detection as well. and. Therefore, you know, he's just improved or with his product would improve the uh, effectiveness and efficiency and the safety of our air combat force generation. It's amazing. And uh, we're in the process of uh, supporting him through the minimum viable product. So we're gaining some more data up at uh, Saltash Range. And our view is that um, early in the new year, we're working with him and, uh, and DST to uh, commercialise the product. I can see a lot of market opportunity for that because there's a lot of ranges in the world that could really benefit. It's massive. And it's just awesome how from an itch that somebody wants to scratch comes a great solution and it's it's like free open source software. Someone comes up with an itch, they start scratching it by building it and if it gets enough momentum, boom, off it goes. And it's, it sounds like Jericho's really helped that momentum grow because it's an itch that you guys want to scratch as well. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the same framework as, you know, working with Greg and his team. I think um, it's one of the things that we're doing in, in Jericho specifically, though, is looking for that traditional 15% of an organisation so that um, those innovators and early adopters of an organisation, you know, statistically 15% for our Air Force, that equates to about 3,000 people. Finding them inside of our organisation 
enabling them and empowering them, um, upskilling them where required, uplifting them as required. That's our EG Air Force program, providing them a space to go and play. That's our Jericho Labs uh, at 10 different locations around Australia. Our headquarters, if you like, is in um, Canberra. Uh, we've got one set up in uh, East Sale, Richmond, soon to be Ambly, Williamtown, soon to be Tyndall, soon to be Edinburgh, uh, and three more next year. And um, that becomes a, a place where people can come in and ideate a problem. So, you know, if um, the problem that led to Greg's uh, and his team's uh, innovation of the neuromorph would have been, um, hey, give me a better way of, of finding, you know, uh, providing space surveillance. And, uh, and he's come up, he and his team have come up with a totally different way of doing it. That's what we're looking to generate or spark inside of our Air Force innovators as well. So as we do it with uh, Greg and his team uh, to support high-end capability lifecycle projects, likewise, we're uh, equally set up to support um, pain points of, of everyone in the Air Force. So this is the interesting thing about academia is that you don't always know the problems that need to be solved. We often come up with ideas and really interesting technologies, but we're not the end users. So we often solve the problem we think we should solve, not the one that we actually should solve. So I started putting these in telescopes because I was just kind of curious to see what would happen. I had no idea that satellites were something that people would be interested in looking at. So, you know, by interacting and by, you know, I think where Plan Jericho is fantastically good is that they come to us and they say, hey, you've got an interesting technology. Here are some interesting problems to consider. Can you tackle any of them? And that links the problem with the technology. And that's something that doesn't happen very easily. And I think that's something that is, you know, unique to what Plan Jericho does. Yeah, effectively, we're, we're helping um, develop requirements where previously it would be left up to a desk officer in capability development group and its new, you know, uh, counterparts, new equivalents. Um, we're actually trying to make people smarter buyers, make defence a smarter buyer. Yeah, and you're going through the rapid iteration process to get a prototype out, exactly what Greg was talking about with their system. You threw together in rapid iterate, you know, very quickly that uh, that shipping container, had it on at um, Avalon. I do remember seeing it as I was walking the Jericho Strip and, uh, you know, amazing stuff, but in the process discovered so many different items that uh, were causing some problems. The point that Greg made was a great one. And at Jericho, we work by fail fast, fail cheap. So that if a line of inquiry isn't worth following, we can we can detect that early on and move on to something that's going to be more powerful for us. And um, Greg, I understand you had a um, obviously a, a team working with you there. Was there anyone like who was doing what essentially? So when we started, it was just me, but now we have quite a large team actually, and we have postdocs and technical officers. We have people who just look after the telescopes. We have people working on the algorithms. We're about a team of ten or twelve people right now. So, you know, this has grown from something that was just a, an idea on the side to a serious research stream for us at ICNS here at Western Sydney. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's worthwhile just saying that, you know, Plan Jericho really gave us that push to get started, but the Australian Air Force picked it up. The Defence Innovation Network really helped us push this idea out. You know, we've been funded by the U.S. Air Force Office of Scientific Research and the Australian Space Agency, and it's through you know, those that we're building this up into something that I think is a really unique capability for Australia. And we're really excited about it. Fantastic. Um, is there anything either of you would like to add? Yeah, I'm all good. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always exciting to talk about, you know, the stuff we're doing and what we're planning to do with this in the future.
Wonderful. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute delight learning more about something that I kind of had a vague idea about. Um, I was not able to get to Avalon last year thanks to injury, and I'm still a little bit miffed about it, I have to say. Um, So it was wonderful to be able to pick your brains uh, about space situational awareness and neuromorphic sensing and get an update on some of the things that Plan Jericho is up to as well. Thanks for that, Lyle. No, you're welcome, Kath. Thanks for having me. Uh, Great talking to you, Grant and Greg. Good as always, mate. Oh, thank you so much. If I could just say one thing, we do have scholarship opportunities. So if you're interested in doing a PhD or master's or coming work with us, reach out. We're always looking for excited and interesting people. Wonderful. Thanks very much, gents. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. We'll wrap up the episode here. It's been very informative, some great uh, information given today, and we're looking forward to bringing you more fun information in the next episode, which hopefully won't be out too long from now. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.